The second reading this morning is from Acts chapter 15. Oh, 1 to 35, was that right? Yeah, sorry. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul, telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. 
So we all agree to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Here ends the reading. Thanks, Pippa and Ken. If you'd like to keep your Bibles open at Acts 15, we're going to spend some time looking at that together now. Uh, the other reading, we're just reading through to Samuel because it's good to be reading the Bible, even if it's not being taught. Um, and so I hope you're enjoying following that along. But today, right now, we're looking at Acts 15. Get myself organised. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask and pray that your spirit will continue to be at work among us this morning uh, to give us ears that are ready to hear and hearts that are soft and ready to trust and obey what it is that you have to say to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What must I do to be saved? When it comes to matters between God and me, or God and you, there aren't many questions that are more significant than that one, are there? And it's a sad fact of history that it has often been churches and religious people who have gotten that question wrong, because we have made the answer longer than it should be. We've added to the answer. I heard a story about a church that had its sign out the front of the church graffitied. The sign did say, you are welcome. And at the end of that, someone had written, if, dot, dot, dot. Yeah, someone had the impression that there are conditions on our welcome. There are requirements that you need to meet in order to be welcome among us. And of course, the real issue is not just whether you are welcome among us, but whether you can be welcomed by God. Who is it that God is willing to welcome to himself and to save, and on what basis? What is his criteria for salvation? What boxes do we need to tick, so to speak? That is such a vital question because there has always been a temptation, as I said, to want to add to the answer. And as we see in today's passage, that's a question that the early church had to wrestle with. They had this exact same problem and in doing so, they have left us with a vital truth that we need to learn from. And so we see from verse 1 that the problem arises when certain people come from Judea to Antioch 
where Paul and Barnabas had been teaching the church. And they came with a very significant and high-stakes claim. Have a look at verse 1 with me. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, we heard a few weeks ago about this church from Antioch. It was the first truly Gentile church and it has been going great guns. They were growing in number and maturity and serving. They were sending out missionaries to other parts of the world. And when that church began, the Jewish Christians were glad that the Gentiles had come to trust Jesus. But clearly, there were some of them who had some concerns and not just on a minor thing. It was an essential question of salvation. What is necessary for salvation and do you have it? And these Jews from Judea were pretty clear that they knew what the answer should be. Faith plus circumcision. Or as you see further down in verse 5, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. So circumcision and the law of Moses were like a package deal and it was the distinguishing mark that God had given to the Jews to set them apart from other people. And Jesus himself said, salvation is from the Jews. And so these Jewish Christians who'd come from Judea to Antioch were saying to the Gentile Christians there, look, you know, it's great that you have come to put your trust in Jesus, but you need to see the bigger picture. Jesus is the answer to the promise to the Jews. And you are very welcome to join us in that, but you need to go the whole way. You need to join us in Judaism to receive the salvation that God has promised through the Jews. Do you see what they're saying? Now, this might be a question that you have never even considered before. You know, that you, the idea that you would have to become into Judaism in order to be a real Christian. But I hope you can see what a genuine issue and a very live and relevant question this was. They were dealing with the very things that God had commanded them to do. And now the Gentiles had been welcomed to be a part of that. So shouldn't they have to do these things? That's the question as it has been raised. And as I said, it's a very real one. And so the church in Antioch sent a delegation to Jerusalem to consult with the apostles and elders there. And so from verse 5, we move from the question raised to the question debated. So the Pharisees raise their objection in verse 5, and there's a lot of discussion, and we don't get the details of that discussion, but then we do hear from Peter and Paul and Barnabas and from James. And their response is consistent and conclusive. And Peter is really the one who carries the argument in his response. And he does so by taking them back to an event that happened a little while earlier and that we actually looked at here a few weeks ago in Acts chapters 10 and 11. You might remember with, with Cornelius becoming a Christian. See, God had told Peter to go and take the gospel message to the Gentiles, something that Peter was initially reluctant to do, but he did. And when he did that... God demonstrated that he accepted those Gentiles by giving them his Holy Spirit, exactly as he had done with the Jews. 
And he didn't do that for the Gentiles because they started following the Jewish law. He did it on exactly the same basis that he did for the Jews because they had put their trust in Jesus. Have a look with me at verse 8 and 9. Verse 8, God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. See, Peter is saying God has already made his call about the Gentiles. And so who are we, he says, to second guess that? Who are we to to question God's judgment and put extra requirements on them that God does not require and that we ourselves could not do anyway? Have a look at what Peter goes on to say in verse 10. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? Why are you testing God, he says? Circumcision was symbolic of a religious requirement to follow God's law in order to be accepted by God. And Peter says, look, we couldn't do that. And God doesn't require that. So why are you putting that burden on them? God has already made his decision about this. So why are you testing God and questioning his decision? Perhaps we could think about this being accepted by God like being allowed entry into a country at the customs, you know, border entry. In a, in a couple of months, our family's fortunate enough to be going on a holiday with our extended family to Hawaii. And as you know, the United States, like most countries, have some requirements that you need to fulfil in order to be able to let into the country. So you've got to get your visas and your passports in order. You've got to, they check your criminal record. You've got to fill in a border entry permit. They quiz you about what's the purpose of your visit. Where will you be staying? How long will you be staying? How much money do you have with you? And these days, show us your vaccination certificate. They have metal detectors, bomb detectors, sniffer dogs, customs officers. There are a lot of requirements. It's enough to make you nervous even if you do have all the things that they need. But imagine if we turned up to the customs checkpoint and standing there was the President of the United States. And he said, look, these guys are okay. They're they're with me. I know them personally and I've given them my okay. You can let them in. They're fine. That's a completely different thing, right? It's completely different criteria from having all your papers in order to being accepted by the person who has the authority to make the call. But imagine then if one of the customs officers came along and said, well, yeah, look, that's all well and good, but they haven't got their visas stamped in the right place or they haven't signed on the dotted line where they're meant to or they haven't paid the the entry fee. See, what they're doing there is they're questioning the authority of the person who's made the call. And Peter says, let's not do that with God. Now, to be honest, I've got no idea whether the president has the authority to make that call. But God does when it comes to our entry into heaven. He is the only one that matters and he has made his decision. 
He has cleared away all those other requirements and made a way to accept us simply by his own generosity through Jesus. And so Peter concludes in verse 11. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. See, the Jews had discovered the graciousness of God. They had been freed from the burden of having to make themselves acceptable to God. And now the Gentiles have discovered that too. So Peter's saying, let's not reverse what God has done by adding those requirements back in. And as I said, this issue and this question is one that every generation needs to remember. If the commands of God that were literally written by the finger of God into tablets of stone are not what is required to be saved, then who are we to add any other requirements? Whether it's baptism or the Lord's Supper or coming to church each week or personal spiritual devotion. Last week we had a baptism here at this service and it was great, wasn't it? And next week we're having another one. And in a moment we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. They are good things that Jesus has given us. But they are not what saves us. And we must not treat them like they are. And, you know, over the years, Christians have come up with certain practices that are helpful for living the Christian life, like daily Bible reading and prayer. It is such a good thing, and I want to encourage each one of us to be doing that. But it must not become a requirement for salvation or the thing that makes you feel like you're okay with God. We need to hear the lesson that this generation learned and defended. We must not test God by adding requirements for salvation that God does not require. Now, we're going to come back to that and drill down on it a bit more because it is such an important issue. But before we do, I want to have a look at the last section where the problem that they've been discussing is resolved and communicated because what we're going to see here is while there must not be things that we need to do as a requirement for salvation, there may be things that we do because they are helpful for the sake of others. So let's have a look from verse 19. As we might expect, the summary that James gives in verse 19 is pretty clear. He basically says, we must not impose requirements for salvation on the Gentiles who turn to Jesus. And then they send out a letter to kind of affirm that, and they say the same thing in verse 28. But then James says something that I think surprises us, and I wonder if you noticed that on the way through. He says it in verse 20, and then they repeat it again in verse 29. He says, we shouldn't make it difficult, we shouldn't burden them, They don't have to keep the law or be circumcised. But here are some things that you do need to do. And he lists four. Did you see that? Abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from meat of strangled animals, and from blood. And I think we read that and and that surprises us, right? What's that there for? Why is he given that requirement? I guess we can understand the one about sexual immorality. That seems like a good thing to suggest, to say. But if he's going to say that, why not say all the good things that the Bible instructs us about how we should live? Like, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, love your neighbour as yourself, pray for your enemies, forgive those who wrong you. 
All those things that we're told that we should do in the Bible. And then what about the other three things? Why those? Don't you wonder why he gives this requirement? After all that we've heard about not adding requirements for salvation? Well, thankfully, he gives us the answer in verse 21. He tells us why he's giving this requirement. Let me read verse 21. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. See, James is saying this is not like a simplified version of the law that will be easier for the Gentiles to keep. He's telling them to do this for the sake of the Jews who are all around them so that the Gentile Christians can be in good fellowship with them. He says, look, there are Jews all around you and they've been taught the law of Moses since forever. And the thing that separates Jews from Gentiles in those cities is idol worship. And those four things that James says are the hallmark of idol worship in those cities. That's what happened in those pagan temples including temple prostitution, which is the reference to sexual immorality. And so he says, look, for the sake of your Jewish brothers and sisters who see these things as so symbolic of idol worship, don't be involved in that. Even if you know that how your meat was killed and where it has been is of no spiritual significance, if it offends the conscience of the people around you, then don't do it. See, there are no requirements for salvation beyond simply trusting Jesus. But there may be things that we should do or not do for the sake of your brothers and sisters around you and to not offend their consciences. Now, this is an important topic that we'll come back to and discuss at other times because it comes up a number of times in the Bible. But I do want to come back now to our main idea that we must not add religious requirements for salvation requirements that God himself does not require. Let me read verse 11 again. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. See, salvation doesn't come from our end of the equation. It comes from the gracious heart of God, who is ready and willing to accept us because of what Jesus has done. And he wants us to trust him in that. But when we add extra things that might make us feel more acceptable to God, well, that's not trusting him. And right from the beginning and throughout every generation, we seem to have this tendency to consistently get that wrong. And notice that the people who are most likely to get it wrong are the religious keen beans, so to speak. That's who it was here. The Pharisees were the keen zealous religious people and they were zealous for God and that's the problem that they have their zeal in their zeal they were destroying the free gift that God had given and the very thing that they were zealous for and this should be a warning for us who hopefully are zealous and enthusiastic about living for God and following Jesus Because there might be so many things that we say are good and right and helpful to do in following Jesus. And where we want to say, of course, we should want to do these things. Of course, they will help us in our living for God. 
and we might be completely right about that. And over time, you may well hear me talking about those things and encouraging you to do them. But we must never say, that's how we are saved, or that's why we are saved. And we must never let those things become the thing that makes us feel that God accepts us, because it's not. I mentioned a bunch of them earlier, and baptism and the Lord's Supper and coming to church and, and doing our personal Bible reading and prayer and things like that. Another example might be being involved and serving at church. Because, you know, the Bible says that we are one body with many parts and every one of us has a part to play and the way we serve is an expression of that. But we must never let that serving become the thing that defines our faith or makes us feel like we are accepted and acceptable. Whether we're constantly doing things around here, which is something that I need to remember and that you need to remember if you're heavily involved in what goes on, or if we're someone who only turns up on the weeks that we're doing something. Wherever we sit on that spectrum, our serving does not make us acceptable to God. That is not what he is judging us by. And let us make sure that it doesn't become that in our minds. Should you be serving others? Should you be going to Bible study to encourage others and to grow in faith together? Should you be reading your Bible and praying yourself? Should you be telling others about Jesus? Should you be going to church as part of the body of Christ together? Yes, yes, yes. Are those the things that define your relationship with God or that save you? No, no, no. Once I start adding those as a requirement for my confidence of salvation then actually end up taking away from the very thing that saves me, which is trusting that God accepts me because of Jesus and not because of me. This way of thinking has become known as gospel plus, trusting Jesus plus something else. So I say, yes, I trust Jesus, but these other things, they make me feel more secure about that because it's something that I can do and I can see and I can tick them off. We all want to have the right stamps on our spiritual passport as well, just in case. But it doesn't work like that. Either you're trusting Jesus or you're trusting those other things. If you could think about it again, like entering into a, a, a country through the, through the uh, customs checkpoint. You know, there are two lines that you can line up in when you enter a country. One is for visitors and the other is for citizens who just get a welcome home. But you, don't, you can't line up in both those lines, can you? You've got to choose one. It's one or the other. Am I going to line up in the line that has Jesus at the front who says, I vouch for you, welcome? Or am I going to line up in the line that says, show me your papers, please? Have you got all the right stamps? You can't do both, and only one of them gets you in. Trusting Jesus means relying on him and him only, on his big heart to welcome you, and not on your big religious efforts to get yourself in. 
And so I guess this is a good opportunity for us all to ask ourselves, am I using religious activities and religious credentials to build a house of cards that cannot bear the weight of my salvation? Or am I simply trusting in God's grace through Jesus? Trusting God is the one thing that must be both everything and nothing. It's everything because it's the only thing that we rely on and it filters out into every aspect of our lives. But it's also nothing because it's coming to God with nothing and saying, I trust you to do this for me, rather than coming to him with something and saying, gee, I hope this is enough. Faith is the empty hands that we come to God with and that we sing about when we sing those words, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Let's pray that that will be the song that always resonates in each of our hearts. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, you know our tendencies to want to add things that make us feel more acceptable to you. Father, please today drive each one of us back to your wonderful grace in Jesus and to trust that alone. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.